0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome. Let's pray. If we could have a seat, ooh, there we go. If we could have a seat, we're going to lift the name of the Lord up in prayer before we start. We're going to lift up the name of the Lord before we start. Before I do, I want to acknowledge those who are watching online. Thank you for your faithfulness in watching. I pray that you can see it and hear it okay. Uh, And if you can't, pray that it comes through, because God can fix digital signals as much as he can fix our hearts. Um, let's pray and then let's dive into his magnificent word. Father, help us to count this as a privilege. Help us to count this as a privilege that we get the opportunity. To worship you in this place. It's all too easy to take for granted the gifts of God, the goodness of God. We have a I deserve, I, I deserve it mentality so frequently. But the truth, the fact of the matter is we don't deserve grace. Because grace is not something that can be deserved. Grace is, by definition, unworked for, unmerited, undeserved. And yet we find ourselves the recipients of it. And sometimes, Lord, because of our sinful hearts, we get grace for a time and then we believe that we can demand it. We believe that we deserve it. And we start to take the things of God, the blessings of God, the good things that come with God for granted as if we deserve them. Lord, remind us that in this place this morning, that this in and of itself, the singing amongst God's people, is a gift from you. Remind us that sitting under the reading of your word is a gift from you because you are a gift to us. The disclosure of yourself to a sinful people is nothing more than a divine gift of unmerited nature to us. Lord, this morning, all we ask is that you stick your your pinky finger in this building. We can't take all of you. If we could just get a little piece of you in this place, we would be grateful. If we could just behold your back, As you as you as you walk by, we would be grateful. If we could be be in this place safely from the start of this service to the end, Lord, we will be grateful. If we can finish this service breathing the way we did when we came in, we will be grateful. If we walk out of here and nothing happens to us between now and the end of this time, we will be grateful. And if something does happen, we will be grateful. If we cannot walk out of here the same way we walked in, we will be grateful. As Pastor Derek said, we will worship you in the midst of all things because the the Christian worldview teaches us that you use all things for your good, for our good and your glory. And though they may be uncomfortable, untenable at times, they will not dictate what is rightfully yours from our lips, which is proper worship of our King. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. So it may be kind of hard to believe, but it has been one full year since we've had a regular service at Pillar Church, and we're still here, y'all, which is amazing. (laughs) Oh, y'all can hand clap and pray. Come on with it. Yeah. I know the times have been trying. I know they've been awkward. I know it's been weird with masks and distance and lack of hugging and lack of consistent gathering and... All that has come this last year, but God has been gracious in allowing us to continue to gather and continue to worship his name. And so we're going to do the only thing we know how to do up in this place is we're going to praise him. We're going to worship him. We're going to hear his word. We're going to conform to what he tells us in his word. And I'm just so glad that y'all are here this morning, because if I'm honest with you, a year ago, I questioned, man, what's going to happen to your church in East Fort Worth? I may not have said that to you guys. It was kind of a, a, a secret prayer I had in my heart. Like, Lord, would you sustain us? Because Pastor Eric isn't smooth enough to sustain us. And, and I'm not good enough a preacher to sustain us. And Pastor Derek's cool, but he can't sustain us. And, and some people are good, but there's people coming and people going and people shuffling and people coming and people not coming. And we just a lot of inconsistency, a lot of confusion. And I ain't saying nothing. y'all don't know. Y'all don't live this year. Right. We know it's been confusing. But God somehow, some way, in his divine providence, by his grace, not only sustained us, but allow us to continue to minister here. And it's only for his glory and his name. So if you leave here with any word on your mind, I pray that you leave here with the name of Jesus stapled to your heart. Not pillar, not, not, a, not the name of a minister or a friend that you met but that the name of Jesus is the only name that you remember at the end of today. That's my prayer. That's what I desire of you. And the only one that can make that happen is God. And so we're going to ask him to do that. I didn't say my name. Good morning. My name is Pastor Canaan. Um, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Malachi. And we're in chapter three at the end of chapter three. So go ahead and uh, open in your copy of God's word to Malachi chapter three. And the book of Malachi has been extremely interesting because what we've seen is a lot of people in their feelings. We've seen a lot of emotions, just like little babies in the front having emotions right now. We've seen a lot of emotions going on with the people of Judah in the book of Malachi. They've they've questioned God. They've been argumentative with God. They've debated with God. They're angry. Their worship to God has been anything other than true Worship, And that's the point of the book of Malachi, to point us in the direction of true worship. And what God is trying to get through to the people of Judah is that true worship begins in the heart before it ever manifests itself in exterior actions. We can do the motions, but if our heart is not desirous to worship God, then those actions are worthless in the sight of God. You're just doing it to to appease yourself, maybe even to get something from God. And we talked about that last week, how the motives of our heart are hard to see, but they indicate where we are. And that that one question, that question why, that we want to avoid with all of us, because we don't want to plunge the depths of it, because maybe we're afraid of finding out what's really down deep within our hearts. We like to stay at the surface level stuff. And I know that you like to do it because I like to do it. We left last week with the people of Judah claiming that God was useless. And they wondered, why did they worship him at all? And now we find ourselves in Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 16. It says this. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. Let's stop there. Finally, after all the dialogue, after all the back and forth, after all the emotions, after all the issues that have been going on between the people of God and the people of Judah, there are some who all of a sudden show up on the scene who are defined as those who fear the Lord. It's like they came out of nowhere because if you were tracking with us from the very first verse in Malachi chapter 1 verse 1, these people don't fear God. They don't even necessarily, they're not even worshipping God the way he wants to be worshipped. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, verse 16 drops into our laps. And it says, at, those time, at this time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Those who feared the Lord seemed to come out of nowhere. The question is, who are these people who fear the Lord? That was my first question as I read the text. Who are these people that have come out of nowhere are they the faithful remnant that god continuously promises over and over again those who never bowed down to a false god those who never um, married daughters or sons who worshipped another god those who didn't treat those in their midst selfishly or with ill intent those who didn't offer bad sacrifices three-legged animals to god are these the people who held it down I don't know, but if they are those people, I pray that you're encouraged that they exist. I pray that you're encouraged that there are some who have not bowed the knee to a false God, and if that's you this morning, then I pray that this text encourages you to never bow the knee to a false God and only to give God genuine worship. Notice I didn't say perfect worship. God's not after perfect worship. We're incapable of perfect worship. But we can give him genuine, true, authentic worship. There's not an animal on earth that is perfect, that is being sacrificed to God, but is the best in the flock of the man and woman who are offering it. And thus, it is acceptable to God because they want to give God their best. And if you have held it down, maybe you've been teetering on the edge, though. You've been faithful, you've been faithful, you've been faithful. And if you remember, uh, uh, last week, I talked about how sometimes we get this complex where if we've been faithful, we've been doing everything we're supposed to go, do. We go to church, we do our offerings to God, we serve with our time, talents, and treasures, and then what do we say to God? Okay, God, I've been holy, bless me. Like it's some kind of reward system. But if you've not been that person who's been holy and asking God to... If you've been that person who has remained Faithful, I pray that this people here motivate you, they drive you, they compel you, yourselves to remain faithful. If you've been faithful, but you've been teetering on the edge of faithlessness, if you've been gravitating more and more to that point where you're even, like the people of Judah, thinking, God, you may be useless for real, but you've been faithful up to this point, I mean, remember, it's a scale, it's not like you just end up over here, you, you have to progress to this point. If you're teetering on the edge where you're like, God, I really don't even know if you're faithful. I've been believing that, I've been trusting in that, I've been holding on to that, but you haven't quite gotten there yet. I want to remind you first that you're not alone. Pastor, Eric spoke, uh, Pastor Derek spoke this morning about how God is cosmically a reality, but he's also a near reality. You're not alone because God is present, but you're not alone because the people of God are sitting amongst you. And if you would be but transparent with the people of God, maybe you can lean on their faith and they can pray and move you closer to where you need to be. I want you to do this. If that's you gravitating, moving in that direction, I want you to lean into God with the truth of how you feel. Because what we tend to do is hide our, 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 the reality of how we're feeling, even from God. It's like we play the facade amongst people, and then we play the facade with God as if he doesn't already know. And, and as far as humanity is concerned, you only heal by as much as you share. You sit isolated. You will continue to spiral into a place where you believe God is worthless. God is useless. But if you're around the people of God, they will remind you of truth. They'll remind you of where your heart may be, that you would remain faithful, maybe like some of these people are. But maybe these aren't those people. It could also be that these people are those people who were dogging out God for all these chapters. It could be that these people who are defined as faithful have recognized that they've dogged out God, they are convicted to the heart of the sin that they've participated in, and now they're repentant of what they have done. They called God useless. But through the prophet Malachi's ministry, they repented of calling God useless. Is that you this morning? Where well, this is your last ditch effort. This is your I'm just gonna see if God got anything, ain't got anything for me. I don't even know, man. He ain't been answering my prayers. He ain't been hooking the kid up. Let's just see. This passage should encourage you too. Because it shows you that it is not too late for you it shows you this passage will show you that God is here that he's present and that he's listening to you he has not turned a deaf ear to your cries or your screams none of that he is present and he hears you God is like a father standing at the doorway waiting for you to come home if you believe the lie that God is useless I want to tell you this that you've been duped by one of Satan's tricky schemes You've been duped. If you believe that God is useless, that God is not worth, uh, that He is worthless, you've been duped by Satan. One of Satan's tricky schemes. God is only useless if He's a means to your selfish ends. I'll say that again God is only useless if He is a means to your selfish ends, which means if you're only coming to God to get what you want, then you will define him as useless when he doesn't give you what you came to him to get. Remember we talked about that last week too, it's here in this passage as well. The people of God cried to God, they screamed to God, they, they, they were shedding tears, God, where you at? And God wasn't doing what they wanted, and so they said, God doesn't work, he's useless. What good is it worshipping him? What good is it sacrificing to him? He doesn't work. The truth is, God is not a genie whose lamp we rub with prayer and out pops the desires of our heart on a platter. If you've treated God like this in the past, like some kind of genie, one, you're wrong and you need to stop. But two, there's grace for you. In this mercy that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll get to how Jesus factors into our passage later this morning. But right now, I just want us to know that this people who showed up out of nowhere could be the faithful remnant or the repentant remnant. I don't know which one it is. The scripture doesn't tell us which one it is. But take heart, because that pretty much defines all of us in this room. Either we've been faithful or we need to repent, which means the passage applies. Doesn't matter where you are. In either way, whether you're the faithful remnant or whether you're the repentant remnant, you still belong to God. Did you notice that in the passage? It says that they belong to God. But let's look at verse 16. I want to look at another aspect of verse 16. In Malachi chapter 3, it says this. But at that time, those who feared the Lord, what did they do? Spoke to one another. What were they saying to one another? What were they doing? Well, one, they were communing together, right? That's like Christianity 101. That's like faith in God 101. You gather together under the banner of God. But what were they saying to each other? I wish I could tell you. I don't know. Because the text doesn't tell us what they're saying to one another. But if I know anything about the people of God who are going through hard times, I can tell you in your cross-reference sheet, Colossians 3.16 may be a good teller as to what they're doing. They're probably teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in their hearts. Maybe they're quoting Psalm 77 to one another, and they're reading these words. They're telling themselves, oh, Pastor Eric didn't know this is fitting in the sermon. They're telling themselves, I will remember the Lord's works. You see that in Psalm 77? It's almost like he's commanding himself to recall the work of God. Sometimes you do need to do that. I will remember the works of God. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. Verse 13, God, your way is holy. What God is great like God. You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. With power, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. I quote that psalm so that you can use that psalm so that when you're in that place, you can quote it to yourself and tell yourself, remember what the Lord has done for you. What were they saying to one another? I don't know. I, I, I think they were remembering. I think they were empathizing. I think they were encouraging one another. I think they were admonishing one another. I think they were building together. I think they were crying together. I think they were praying together. I think they were repenting together. And then notice the end of verse 16. Y'all see this. Look at this. Notice what it says at the end of verse 16. After all of this, the Lord took notice and listened. Don't raise your hand, but how many times have you prayed and you felt like God didn't hear you? How many times have you spoken audibly or in your heart to God and for some reason, one reason or another, you think or you believe he has not heard your cries? You've been wailing, you've been crying, you've been begging him. I know in my home, we have kids, and when you have kids, sometimes you don't sleep. And my wife has begged God week after week after week, God, give me some sleep. Y'all got kids, y'all know I want some sleep. Give me some sleep. She didn't know I was going to say that, but it's real, though. It's real. Y'all got some kids, y'all know, sleep, I want sleep. You don't value it until you don't have it. And it's almost like, God, are you even hearing me right now? God, I've been holy. God, I've been taking care of these, these kids. Wow, I've been, I've, been doing, I've been giving still. I've been showing up. Where's my reward? See how easily that can flip into sin? The Lord took notice and listened. Guys, God sees you. God hears you. God understands your circumstances. He's hearing your prayers. Whether you've been the faithful remnant, the repentant remnant, the teetering remnant, the confused remnant. It doesn't matter where you categorically fit. He hears that. And the question is, well, if he hears me, why ain't he doing nothing about it? Am I talking to somebody or just my house? Oh, just my house. Y'all all have prayed. And God has not delivered what you want. And you've labored in prayer. And God has not given you what you want. And so you either think, I'm broken. Or God is useless. And before we ever consider ourselves broken, we're usually quick to point the finger first to God being useless. When God could be doing something for you. In the midst of your cries. Maybe he's teaching you about your American lack of patience. Because it's really just an American problem. You know, we got this instant microwave culture. Everything got to happen when I say it needs to happen. God don't work like that. Maybe he's teaching you about long suffering and about endurance. Maybe he's protecting you from yourself. Because we always know what's best for ourselves, right? We always know what to do for ourselves, right? Then you find yourself in a pickle. The answer is no, it's rhetorical. No, you don't know what to do for yourself half the time. Maybe he's forcing you out of the rabbit hole that you live in to lean on brothers and sisters around you because when we're deep in sin and God is not answering or if we're, we're in a circumstance that's hard and God is not answering, we tend to isolate ourselves like that's the answer. But sometimes God is moving you. He's, 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 he's manipulating situations around you where you have to lean on a brother or sister around you. Maybe that's why. Maybe he's dealing with your selfish motives because you're asking in the spirit of James 4, chapter, uh, James chapter 4, verse 3. You don't receive because you ask with selfish motives. I'm not always sure what God is waiting for, but the fact that I know that he sees me, the fact that I know that he hears me, gives me hope. I remember seeing an interview of um, a group, I believe it was coal miners, or somebody who was stuck in the, the mind thing that they were at, and, and they couldn't get out, and they screamed for weeks, somebody hear me, can somebody hear me, and, and the, the hole. that, do you ever feel like, when you feel utterly hopeless, it's like you're in this, like they were literally in a pit, but it almost feels like you're in a, like a pit, and like nobody hears me, but as soon as they heard tapping from the outside, tit, 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 whether or not they could get out became irrelevant. What happened? They were infused with hope because somebody heard them. And now there's a possibility. Now there's something can be done. Now there's, oh, I'm not here alone. There's something about the camaraderie of the brethren when you're suffering and somebody's with you. They can't get you out that mug, but they're with you in that. And that gives you hope. It gives you strength. It gives you endurance. And God is saying, I hear you, I see you. You're not dolo. I got you. I'm here. No telling tell him what he can and can't, will and won't do. I don't know. But he's listening. Those circumstances will not stay the same forever. You can go to him in confidence. You can go to him in faith. You can go to him in prayer because he sees and knows your circumstance. And I want you to honestly think right now, like literally right now, what's the circumstance that's causing bits and pieces of you to believe God is wrong, that he's useless? What is it? There's something you're asking God for he ain't doing for you. I know it's happening for you because it's happening to me. I've asked God for a lot of things haven't gotten them. You've asked God for a lot of things haven't gotten them. But God heard me though and I'm good with that. Don't get it twisted. I'm like, Lord, you're, you're going to do something, right? You're gonna... But I have hope that my circumstances will not remain the same forever and they never do he's listening to the hearts of the saints and when you bring that that thing to God can we do this can we be slow in asking him to fix everything whatever happened to going to God and asking him for strength to endure because we came with the worldview that understood that whatever is happening to me is for my good and my growth we're so, we're so quick. God, oh, I got the circumstances. Lord, fix it. Come on. Why aren't you fixing it? Fix it. How are you ever fix it? How, why don't we just come to God like, yo, give me the strength to endure this? There's a reason for this. You're teaching me something. You're teaching someone else something through me. I don't know, but whatever happened to going to God for strength to endure rather than God be Mr. Fix It for me? Because if you think about it, the, 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 the swath of our prayers are Mr. Fix It prayers. Whatever happened to going to God for comfort? I May mean, I feel alone. Lord, can you just put your arms around me? Nothing else is changing, Lord. I just need you. I just need. I just need to know you're here. You're real. When's the last time you did that with the Lord? You just want to be present with Him, not fix everything, not change everything. You think the early church didn't want? Do you think the early church wanted to be persecuted? But what did they pray for? Lord, give us the endurance to stand firm. Why? They knew they had a bigger lens. They knew that God was doing something through their persecution. And what was he doing? Spreading his message that more people would come to faith in Christ. And don't think that your life is any different. And then look at verse 16. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. The, The ending part of the verse, it says this. It says, so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared The Lord and had high regard for his name. Let's stop right there. What is this book of remembrance? And I know, you know, depending on how you read this, it could be that the people of God were writing a book remembering all that the Lord was doing and has done for them. That that seems like a... a a reading that's like a a viable reading there, that they're they're together and they're encouraging one another and they're writing down so that no generation can forget what God has done. And I want to encourage you that that's a good practice. That's called journaling, right? It's called, this is an Old Testament practice that kings used to do is have books of remembrance. And so that's a good thing, but I don't think that that's what the text is saying. I think the text is saying something infinitely better than the people were gathering together, writing a book of remembrance so that the next generation wouldn't forget all that God has done. Here's why I think, th- here's why I think he's saying something better. Because we can write down a book of remembrance, but as soon as the generation shifts, what will they do? Y'all can say it. What are they going to do? Forget. Disregard. You know how I know? We have a whole 66 books of remembrance. And what does the culture and the generation do? disregard and forget. I think the text is telling us something that's better. I don't think it's that the people are writing down a book of remembrance. I think it's metaphorical support. I think it's anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic language, like they're, they're, they're assuming something that we do unto God as if he does this, and it's saying, if you read it closely, that there's a book of remembrance written before God in the heavenly places. What is he saying? He's guaranteeing that we don't forget, that, that God has, he's guaranteeing to us that God has not forgotten us. He's saying a book of, now we know God doesn't need a book to remember, Right? But by saying God has written down a book of remembrance of you who have remained or have become the faithful, it's reminding me that he has not forgotten about me. This is an Old Testament practice. Old Testament kings would do this. You'll find an example of that in the book of Esther. If you read the book of Esther, Mordecai did something good. It was written down in in the king's books. And then later on, the king recounts those books and rewards Mordecai for what he has done. It's a book of remembrance. Kings use this so that they can make edicts and reward people who have done great things in their kingdom. The king doesn't want to forget what those citizens have done. In a similar way, it's almost as if the heavenly hosts are writing a book of remembrance before God so that God will remember the faithful remnant. It's a way of telling those who fear God that they are not invisible to him. And if you remember last week, we said that those who serve God, who love God, who fear God ought not to do so just to get stuff, but to get God. And if we remember that he hears us, we are his and we get him at the end of the day. We're not getting God so that we can get stuff. We get God and in the midst of getting God. Sometimes we tend to get stuff. That's how it works. We're not coming to God for the benefits of God, though the benefits of God may be great. And we'll look at those in a little bit. But we come to God because the ultimate benefit is his presence. That's what we're after is the presence of God. All the good stuff is good stuff. Don't get it twisted. I like good stuff. But the presence of God is infinitely better than good stuff because when you have no good stuff and you're in God's presence, you're completely satisfied. But when you have a whole lot of good stuff and God is absent, you're miserable. Why? Because they don't satisfy the yearnings of the soul. You find yourself climbing that corporate ladder for no reason. You got there, so what? Yeah. And so you know what we do? We, we change it. or well, it's the next step that I'm, it's the next step. Why? Because it's infinite next steps until you die, right? So you're trying to cope with, no. It's because you have a, you're missing the presence of God. You've sought for something else. Malachi chapter 3, look at verse 17. These words. Don't just look at these words slowly. Oh, good words. These are good words. Malachi 3.17. Look Look what God says. Remember, the book of remembrance is written before him, right? Look what he says. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies. My own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son. And the son who serves him. You, me, the people of Judah, this is one of the benefits we get from God. This is one of the things, the stuff that we get. We get identity for the first time. True identity. Don't take that lightly. Your identity is like strands of rope that are being woven together representing what you believe and who you think or you say you belong to. That kind of sums up what you say your identity is here god is telling his people who have had their culture compromised these people who have forgotten their own language and their own heritage because they were in bondage for 70 years under the babylonian captivity he's telling these people who have literally belonged literally were owned by another foreign people who no longer knew who they were or what they believed He's telling them that they are my possession. God has redeemed that whole concept of being my possession because humanly speaking, when something or someone is your possession, you are using them for selfish gain to come up in order to step on their back in order for you to be higher than the rest. That's what it means to have a possession from an earthly mindset. But when God says that we're his possession, it's not so that he can step on our backs, it's that he may lift us up and we are redeemed through what he has done. When he says we're his possession, we are his possession for his glory and our good. Both. Both. When we hear the word possession, as a black man, I don't like it. Because I look back and read in the history books when my people was a possession, was a commodity, was owned. Similar to these people. But it's crazy. Being God's possession completely dwarfs that reality. Because he's able to redeem He's able to change. He's able to show what possession looks like. Not not the sinful possession of plantation slave owners. That needs to be condemned for what it is. Trash. But his possession is for the benefit of his people. That they will be made whole. Before anything else. We who regard God's name highly have found identity in our creator. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, we're taught by the apostle Paul that because of the work of Jesus, we have been unified and we are no longer to regard, firstly, any other reality other than our faith in a common savior as the marker of our identity. That is the first thing we go to. Who are you? Answer, child of the most high. That's the first thing you say. Before you say, I'm from Boston, because you know Boston's where it's at, you know what I mean? Beantown. Before you say, whatever it is you tend to say, who are you? Well, I work for such and such a company. Why is that the first thing we say? Who are you? Oh, I'm a daughter of the king. Oh, you ain't never heard of them? I'm a daughter of the most high, let me tell you. Oh, my name is so-and-so. Yeah, you have, let, me, let me introduce you to Pops. God says that they are my possession. This isn't a new concept in Scripture. It's all over the text. It's everywhere. Look in your cross-reference sheet. I only gave you three. Titus 2.14. It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. What's he doing for these people whom he possesses? Cleansing them, redeeming them, lifting them to where they should be, where they were supposed to be. 2 Peter 2, 9 through 10, it says, But you, people of God, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's God doing for his people possession here? He's calling them out of darkness into marvelous light. Notice that God is doing for his possession, not his possession doing for him. We do for him out of of response of gratitude. We sing praises to him because he is literally worthy of praise because he's a king. But look what he does for us. He And then look what verse 10 says in 2 Peter 2, verse 10. This is why our identity is first in him. You see what it says? Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Psalm 33, verse 12. The CSB says, happy is the nation. I like to say blessed because it feels a little deeper. But happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. When you remember that you belong to God, you can serve him with all your heart and never have to worry about being cast away, about being abused, or worse. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, why? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because you belong to him now. He loves you. He hears you. He sees you. And his love is not based on how well you perform for him. Let me say that again. God's love for his people is not based on how well you perform for him. It's not. That's like refreshing To the the ears of a people and a culture who will cast you away if you don't look a certain way, act a certain way, speak a certain way. A world who's so fickle, you in one minute, you say one thing, you're getting kicked out. I mean, it's like this fickle world, but there's something to be said about the consistency of the presence of God and the consistency of God's grace for you, for me. That's what real love looks like. Like Your identity needs to be bound up in the resurrected Savior and is secure in Christ who will never leave you nor forsake you. That's not my words. That's scripture. here. Hebrews 13.5. He pulls you out of that. What have you done for me lately? Paradigm. Christians, that's a cause for celebration for you. If you're a Christian here this morning, know that God hears you. God has not forgotten you. Even though many of you may be thinking, I'm the forgotten one, though. No. That's just not true. You are not the forgotten one. Jesus said, all who come to him, he will certainly not cast away. That's what he said. All who come to him, he will certainly not cast away. And, the, and, and, the one, and he would lose none of whom the Father gives him. John six thirty-seven 37-40. Go to him. Go to him. And if you're afraid that to go to God after dogging him out so much because that's me, right? I'll sin. And you know what sin does? You ever get caught up in, in, in a sin and then you find yourself going, I can't go to God now, right? I got I to gotta be holy for about a day and a half. Then I can go to God. That, y'all, y'all have, come on now. I ain't the only one. I know, I know y'all do it because that's what I do, right? You, you find yourself caught up in sin and then you're like, oh, I know I repented, but I got to be holy first. And then I'm going to come to God with, with whatever, right? And so you're afraid to come to him, maybe. Maybe you think he ain't going to accept you back. Verse 17 of Malachi 3 speaks to that directly. Look what he says, Malachi 3, 17. He says, they will be mine, says the Lord of armies. My own possession on the day I am preparing. Look what he says. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. What does that mean it means that there's grace for you there's mercy for you there's hope for you and you can go before his presence and get compassion from the lord of armies why because you got god and when you got god you got mercy you got grace you got compassion when you got god you got joy you got a christian family You've got spiritual protection because you're a part of a local church. You've got peace. You've got soul rest. You've got truth. You've got a new identity. You've got belonging. You've got eternal life. All these good things come not, as, not in and of themselves. They come because you got God. Don't get it twisted. It comes with spiritual warfare. It comes with burdens of the soul. It comes with critics and naysayers. You okay, baby? It comes with critics and naysayers. It comes with persecution. You notice the, the words of the scripture where it says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Right? Don't get it twisted. It ain't you know, sugar plums and, and, and butterflies all of a sudden. But it's in the midst of the storms that you are sustained because you got God. It means that you're a son or daughter of the Most High and you don't have to fear any condemnation. God promises to display a distinction, though. God promises to display a distinction though. Before you think that this is just God blanketly giving out all of these good things that come in him, the verse that's coming up, verse 18, God promises a distinction between those are his and those who are not his. Look at verse 18. He tells his people, so you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serves God and those who do not serve him. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, right now, if you can't say that you regard the name of Jesus highly, if you define yourself more as spiritual and you don't define yourself as Christian, then there is a fundamental difference in the economy of God between his people and you. All of those things come to those who are his people, not to you. You get that which your wickedness deserves. Y'all hear me? You get that which your wickedness deserves. And the only means to escape the wrath of God is the person of Jesus. But before you run to Jesus trying to escape the wrath of God, I have to make a fundamental distinction. I got to test you. Because if you're going to Jesus just to escape the wrath of God, that means that you would go to something else if it offered you escape from wrath of God. You're after the benefit and not the God who provides it. If the only reason you stand here is because you get to, es- and you call yourself a Christian, it's because you escaped the wrath of God. Don't get it twisted. That's good and that's great. You should want to escape the wrath of God. But that's something that comes with God. You know what's fundamentally more amazing than escaping the wrath of God? The love and presence of God. You see, for the Christian, it wasn't the wrath of God that caused me to be enamored with him. It wasn't that he saves me from it alone that caused me to be enamored with him. It's that he would love me in such a way that he would give himself to redeem me from. Name it. It's the love of God that got your boy hooked. It's the presence of God that gets Christians all jacked up. Not that he saves me from wrath. It's that he saves me at all. So you can't just come to Jesus like, yo, he's going to help me escape the wrath. It's true, but you would go to anything that would help you escape the wrath, wouldn't you? Are you a Christian here because... You're going to escape God's wrath? Not because the love of God was displayed in the person of Jesus on a cross 2,000 years ago, beaten, mocked, crucified, but at the end of the day resurrected, proving his sacrifice trustworthy, true, and efficacious. Are you trusting in anything else? Is Is that all you want Jesus for? Save me from the wrath and I'm Gucci. I don't know if we have the same God then. I think your God is you. And the object of your worship is Jesus because the beneficiary is you. It's almost like you're trying to make God your possession so that you can come up on what he's done rather than being God's possession and coming up as a, def- as a default of being under him. So I don't think you're trying to use God like a genie. You gave me out the wrath, cool. That's all I need from you. I want you to come to grips with this reality. You don't deserve to be heard from God. You don't deserve to be seen from God. You don't deserve anything good that you have from God because you are a wretched sinner. But in His grace, He He, 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 um, um, distributes good things to those who love Him and even gives good things to those who don't. He is King, worthy of worship, worthy to be praised. In the midst of or despite, he is worthy. Verse 18 says, So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the ones who do not serve him. And in the coming chapter, God's going to flesh that out a little more. But here's what you need to hear if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you need to take heart because God hears you and God sees you right now. So just be honest with him. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I don't want you to take heart. I want you to take heed because God sees you and God hears you and he knows the motive of your heart and he will not be played like a genie. But if you would turn from worshiping yourself and direct your worship to King Jesus, his redemptive, salvific work on the cross can be applied to you. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity to hear your word, to sit under your word. And though that was just a smidget of what you have to say in this section, I pray that the rest of this book has done its work. I was reminded last night that the word of God never returns void. I pray that it is so efficacious in this place right now. Lord, you are worthy of our praise and glory in the midst of all that is going on, in the midst of all that is happening around us. You are worthy. Would you cause us to remember that? Would you cause us to remember that you are king on high? Would you cause us to remember that you've blessed us with grace upon grace? Lord, you are worthy of all praise. I thank you, Lord. I'm so grateful for you. Lord, I thank you and I pray that you remind me that you hear these prayers. In Christ's name, amen.